Well, good evening, everybody, and thanks for coming out tonight and braving the heat today, the extreme heat. Um, really, uh, really appreciate y'all coming. And um, my name is Patrick Milliken from the Poison Pen, obviously. And um, I'd like to introduce our two authors. Jillian Lauren is a true crime expert, writer, storyteller, adoption advocate, and rock wife. Uh, she's the New York Times bestselling author of the memoirs, Everything You Ever Wanted, and Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, and the novel Pretty. Some girls in which she recounts her time spent in the harem of the Prince of Brunei. Is it Brunei or Brunei? Brunei. Brunei, oh, great. Has been translated into 18 languages. Um, as you'll learn, she was the only journalist to extensively interview Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer in American history. This experience is chronicled in Joe Berlinger's hit documentary series, Confronting a Serial Killer, and in Michael Connolly's podcast, Murder Book. Let me just jump out here. Murder Book, The Women Who Brought Down Samuel Little. Um, shall I go on? Uh, Jillian is a regular storyteller with The Moth and performs at spoken word and storytelling events across the country. You've probably seen her TED Talk, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it is a real treat and an honor to welcome our author tonight, Jillian Lauren, as I put this up. Also joining us tonight is uh, Camille Kimball, my good friend Camille Kimball, local true crime author. She's an Emmy-winning reporter who's worked on television, on radio, and in newsprint. Her first book, A Sudden Shot, The Phoenix Serial Shooter, was published in 2009. Her second book, What She Always Wanted, A True Story of Marriage, Greed, and Murder, received the Reader's Choice Best True Crime of 2010 Award. So please help me welcome Camille Kimball. Oh, my turn. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming in from the heat. Um, that's really, really brave. Jillian, and uh, thank you for coming to the Valley of the Sun. And I'm sorry we didn't order you up some more civil weather. Pretty hideous. And there's people online watching. I'm good. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, they wanted me to start by asking you about your novel leading to this book. But I something else I wanted to ask you first. True crimer to true crimer. So the true crime world is very different because you're dealing with live criminals, dangerous, dangerous people, and you're also dealing with an enormous and very intimidating justice system. So you had two things happen to you that are my personal nightmare for a true crime writer. Kind of got in trouble at the prison and got a subpoena. Let's hear about these two things. Wow, that really was crime writer to crime writer. Because normally people's question is, you know, what what was so, you know, what was the most terrifying moment of sitting across from this man? And I was like, really truly the most terrifying moment of this book was when I first okay, okay. First of all, I ignored a subpoena. Don't do this. Don't. How can you ignore a subpoena? I I have an attitude. I just get an <laughs> attitude about things. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. I talked to the lawyers directly. And then I got a second subpoena. And I had to appear in open court. And I was held in contempt of court for not turning over my sources. And it was truly frightening. And a friend of mine who was a lawyer told me, you know, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to discredit you. You know, they're going to try to discredit you as a journalist, and that's how they're going to get 
your you know what they were trying to prove was there was some prosecutorial misconduct mm -hmm. and they thought i might have that in my notes so, you know, I sat there um, in the middle of COVID, ready to go to jail in San Bernardino. And I don't know if you've been to San Bernardino. It's about this hot and not this pretty at all. Um, you do not want to go to jail in San Bernardino. But, um, you know, I was sort of like, I don't know, do I bring a toothbrush? I guess, you know, like I can't do this. I, um, you know, but I remember that the public defender, like, slut shamed me in a court of law and said you know this woman has these unconventional tactics you know she speaks to him in this way as if she's his friend she talks to the cops she you know like and i was just like whoa like this would be really cool i wish i wish this my wasn't i wish this wasn't right a now. closed courtroom this is my big moment <laughs> like no one's allowed in here but i was like i was totally just slut shamed and the argument was i'm not a journalist so you can all decide for yourself but i mean they decided that i was the judge did rule that i was in fact a journalist yeah all right i will get to patrick's question now thank you for that yeah. um how did you start writing this book? Because you started out doing something very different. I wanted to not be a journalist. <laughs> For just one moment, just please. You know, I, I tend to get myself into trouble. And also, my kids were getting a little bit older, and I wanted to pivot. And, I, you know, I had started with fiction. And, uh, you know, I want to write, like, proper mystery novels. I wanted to be the, I told Michael Connolly, who wrote the foreword to my book, I said, you know, I'm asking you to write my forward and thanks so much and all that, but you know I'm like fast at your heels, right? Mm -hmm. I'm coming for you, Michael Connolly. Um, and uh, I mean, he couldn't be more so. He's like, please, somebody, somebody take it. Well, see, now this is a question I had. Uh, do we have Harry Bosch fans here at all? Harry Bosch? No? Yes? 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 Okay. Um, if you don't know Harry Bosch, he's an extremely famous fictional detective that comes straight out of the head of Michael Connolly, who's an incredibly successful, talented author who also gets his books made into movies all the time. So you, you Or does he come straight out of his head? So here's where this comes from. He does not. He's based on a real guy named Rick Jackson, who did a lot of interviews with me. And also his new character, Renee Ballard, is based on detective... Detective Mitzi Roberts at the Robbery Homicide Division, uh, which is the fancy, they're the fancy detectives in LA. Um, you know, if it's a multiple murder, if it's a celebrity murder. Um, and she worked cold cases there. And I got a rare interview with her and asked her at the end of the interview what she was more proud of, what she was most proud of in her career. She said, I'm proud of them all. I did catch this serial killer once. And uh, that was pretty cool. Oh, just drop that on the floor, like. And I was also sort of like, I know, like, Edgebrees. I mean, who else feels this way in this room? Are you, I mean, I have just, since I was nine, been fascinated with, you're just not admitting it. Stop it. Um, like, aberrant behavior. Like, why? You know, what? like, why our minds... Why our minds go sideways? What do, why do we consider what we consider normal? Well, I have to ask you, since you had that fascination and you spent so much time with Sam Little, do you have the answer? 
Why do our yes, minds go totally silent? Are. Aren't you ready? I'm <laughs> so excited. I'm so excited to share with you today why serial killers do what they do. No, of course not. I mean, but you know, I mean, not to go all Buddhist, but really the journey was the answer for me because, you know, it was so much about going into this deep lives of these victims. And at the end of the day, Sam Little was an aberration. Basically what happened is I looked this up after the interview with Mitzi and realized this was an underreported killer um, who had never received the press or fame of so many of his counterparts, A, because he had been caught only a few years before, but underreported upon because no one cared about his victims. They came from marginalized communities. He stayed in the shadows, often women of color, drug addicts, impoverished, um, and he counted on people not caring. You know, he, he preyed upon what um, is sometimes called the less dead. Right, you know, the blonde coed who goes missing on spring break is the most dead. And the black prostitute, black transgender prostitutes, that is actually the, the population the most at risk statistically in this country. Um, you know, they, they wind up ignored and marginalized. So that's how we got away with it. So speaking of how he got away with it and how he did his crimes, he often, Sam Little is who we're talking about, Sam Little often dumped the bodies in very particular little out-of-the-way spots. So that really struck me, does he, does he have just a, an uncanny knowledge of a whole lot of territory, or did he scout these dump sites and then go hunt for a victim? Uh the former, um, and also he often worked sort of in the same, what he would call his killing fields. So he did know areas, but also, you know, like I said, his, his victims were so well cherry-picked. Um, he, he, he tried to bury one body and then found it was, it was a lot of work and uh, decided that, that once... I, um, once he figured out that they didn't care, he never buried another body. He'd leave them upside down in piles of tires. He'd leave them in barrels, but, um, he'd also leave them right by the side of the road. But, but, but just a little off the road to where there was brush or a little access road or something that no one's going to really notice anything. Mm. Sometimes. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't say that's a consistent part of his M.O. You know, the, the murder that I was actively involved in solving That's what I was most. thinking of, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I was there. I crawled through the brush, you know, into that. So it, it wasn't actually even all that brushy during that time. It was the, a cul-de-sac at the end of a road. There were um, shipping containers. There was a lot of like shipping companies. Um, it was on the side of the 710 freeway, which a is a large freeway that runs north-south um, in California. And um, But the it was right next to the side of the freeway where he dumped her body. Her name is Alice Denise Duval. And um, he would kill the women in his car frequently. 
that was, you know, his, that was sort of his home. It was his hunting ground. It was, um, uh, you know, his, <sighs> he lived in his car. He lived in his car. He killed in his car. And um, I went and looked and, I mean, how they found Alice and then how ultimately I found Alice um, 20 years later was a, a little kid saw the body from a, um, a bike path. He, he didn't hide it under any brush. He, he told me if he had just given a little kick, it would have rolled onto the freeway. It was right by the side of the road and remained a cold case and unidentified um, until I started nosing around. Good for you. You yeah. did a good thing. Um, uh, let's talk about, uh, since you brought up a couple of specific cases, um, there was also a very small handful of survivors. And I would we can't possibly go into the whole story tonight, but I would like to highlight some very compelling testimony that's in the book from someone who managed to, through the truest of all grit, true grit, uh, escape in the middle of it. Please tell us more Lay about Layla McLean. Uh, Layla McLean, like, you know, sometimes I felt like I never met this man. Like, really, I, 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 I was like, really? Why does this always happen to me? Seriously, like I, I was trying to write a novel, you know, and I literally, oh, and I, I, you know, literally wound up like having to talk to the worst guy in the world. Why don't I redo a little bit of Layla, even though I can't. Sure, do. Uh, Let's so hear about Layla. I, um, so I, Layla was, had already passed away, um, and uh, uh, I did get to interview Hilda though, her friend, um, and that was remarkable. I got the only interview with Hilda, and I learned a whole lot about what it was like to be a black prostitute in Mississippi in 1987, which it was a whole lot like being nobody. Uh, nobody that anyone prosecuted any crimes about, that's for sure. Um, but lo nobody to the cops, nobody to, you know, uh, otherwise, uh, unless you lived in the shadows, I mean, there weren't nobody to their friends because it was the women who were prostitutes who had a pact amongst themselves that if you disappeared for too long, they went and checked on you. And that's how one of them was saved. But Layla, out of 93 women, five foot two, fought her way out. She is the only one who did. And I, uh, I do, I do include a lot of the original testimony, but I gave her a whole chapter. Um, like, I just left her, and I can't do her voice, you know, but uh, I just left her. I just left Layla as she was because I was like, there's just no, there's nothing I can add. Um, all right. Well, while she looks for that, I'll no, tell I you. No, I got it. Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> um, 
All right. So, and this man, once he departed the vehicle, did he speak with you? That's Beth Silverman, the DDA. McLean, yes, ma'am. I was walking along the road, and then, you know, the strip was so small, we kind of came in contact with each other. So there was a, a strip car called Carver Village in Pascagoula, Mississippi. And on one side was the projects, and on one side was the front, where you could get anything you wanted. People came from miles around. Uh, and you passed him? Yes, ma'am. And he say, how you doing? And I say, fine. And you, he said, do you date? I said, yes, I do. Silverman, and what did you take that to mean when he said, do you date? McLean, do you prostitute? Silverman, okay. And you said, McLean, yes. And what was the conversation at that point? He said, how much will it be? I said, 50 bucks. He said, no problem. And then I said, well, I live right around the corner. He said, no, we're going to the Shamrock Hotel. So this speaks to what you were asking me for. Yeah, he did have spots. Um, uh, it's right across the street. So I'm figuring, you know, I'm in a close distance to the strip. So I tell him, yes. So he told you he wanted to go to the Shamrock. Where was the Shamrock in relationship to the village? Anyway, it was, it was, you know, far into the woods and brush. Um, and, uh, let me jump ahead here. Uh, and as we was going around the corner, he passes Shamrock. And I said, you passed it, turn around. I say, go back that way. He said, I don't need to turn around for what I'm going to do to you. And he hit me right here in between my eyes and then cold cocked me behind my head. He fought me. Silverman, let me ask you this. When you said that he made a comment to you, you showed us with your left, they go back and forth about, um, the arms he was using, and uh, and Silverman says, and when he was hitting you, did he hit you with an open hand or with a closed fist? Ma'am, he was boxing me. He was boxing you. He was boxing my face and head, and when he opened his hands, he used them to choke you. When you said he was boxing you, is that a term you would use for someone that's hitting you with? That would be for hitting me with both right and left fists. Sam alternately muffled giggles or sneered as McLean sm spoke. Juror number seven wept. It wasn't just the victim's wrenching testimony. Something about the viciousness in the set of Sam's jaw, watching her speak. Those hateful eyes were the last things these women saw. After all the trying, even if they failed, look at Audrey Nelson's body. It was nothing if not a body that had tried everything. She had to leave under that monstrous gaze. Uh, and I'm just going to jump forward to one of my favorite lines in the book here. And it is about how Layla got away. She fought him. She boxed him. She got away. And uh, she tripped over Smokey Joe, who was peeing in the bush behind a bar. And he dragged her into the middle of the street. And they took her to the hospital. Um, and uh, after these people came out of the clubs, did someone take you to the hospital? Yes, ma'am. And you were treated at the hospital? Yes, ma'am. And can you describe for us what kind of injuries you had as a, a result of this? These are typically injuries that happen through with strangulation, petechial hemorrhaging. Um, you know, uh, she couldn't talk for days. Um, she'd been beaten about the head. Uh, she couldn't swallow. Um, 
when the defendant was hitting you in the head, did you ever lose consciousness? No, ma'am. Did you see what some people call it stars? I seen stars and clovers. Did you tell anybody in the hospital what had happened to you? No, ma'am. Well, let me ask you this question. Did anybody ask you? No, ma'am. I'm just in awe of, of Layla McLean um, getting her way out of that horrible situation. She was, and, and you know, I went and walked that route with the cop, and I was like, what? I had seen an aerial, I had read all about it, and I went and walked it. I was like, four lanes of, he's like, oh yeah, it is. And I, Four lanes traffic. Oh yes, it is. And he just If I don't give away too much, I hope I hope I don't. But in, in the middle of this incident, where she's trying to fight her way out of this car while he's trying to st strangle her and subdue her with the with the blows and everything, uh, a young a young a, a boy on a bicycle came by and asked, "Ma'am, are you okay?" And I want to know. Now that you know Sam very well, was that boy in just as much danger in that moment as as Leela was? No, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have uh, attacked the boy. No. The time Sam was caught, he stopped. He had a whole stoppy shtick. He'd be like, "Oh, me and the lady here, we were just having a." He he left no witnesses. He didn't kill children. That you know, I mean. Did he have an ethic against killing children? Um, although I've heard from his relatives that he molested a couple kids, um, I have confirmation of that. It, it wasn't his main thing, I would say. I guess, uh, you know, people tried different things. But no, he was a sexual strangler. You know, he could not have sex without strangling women. That was was how he received pleasure. It was really his, his only way of receiving pleasure. Well, uh, we have another survivor I'd like to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that is, you've already mentioned her, uh, Layla's friend, Hilda. And... In my copy, which is different than the copy on sale tonight, on page 148, so it'll be different on yours, you, you did talk to her, and she, she, she saw Sam in the courtroom at the courthouse, and she told you, I felt sorry for that little old man in the wheelchair. That's, that's almost Not transcendent Not only that, it was me. the second time she saw him in a courthouse. Both those women had to were called twice because he was he was there was a failure to indict by a by a grand jury and they never even heard their testimony they called them and never heard their testimony they had them as eyewitnesses it was a, a murder of a white girl melinda Laprie. a couple of years later they had to go back in 2014 and testi testify yeah and hilda said I, I looked at that little old man and i i had to feel sorry for him you know, one toe walking, and and he, she's like, I just don't understand. Why, like, he, like he didn't even take our money. He didn't. Even, I don't understand. 
Yeah, what for? What for? Why do you have to do us like that, you know? I don't understand how she can find it in her soul after that terrifying, life-threatening experience to have compassion for him that he never had for her. She was a, a church-going woman. She was soft and kind and funny and bright and forgiving and compassionate. And she told me, like, I had to put this to bed. You know, I didn't even want to go out there and testify because I, I had I had put it to bed. So by the time I saw him, you know, I had already put it to bed because wow. I have to. Good for her. Yeah. I mean, amazing. I Again, in awe, in absolute awe. I know I'm in awe, too. I mean, I can only tell you what she told me, not how it would have affected me or what I would have done. Who knows? Okay. So, uh... There's 93 victims. You may not have everyone top of mind, but we are in Phoenix, so let's ask about that. There is a Phoenix case. Can you tell us yes. about it or about Sam's time here in general? Um, well, uh, Sam was a transient. Sam moved through this part of the country. Um, Linda Belcher was the Phoenix case. I don't know that many details okay. um, about the actual about the actual murder or the um, uh but I mean, I, you know, I could tell the M.O. was, I mean, I think it was the Pinto. He killed her in the Pinto. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I, I sort of think of things in chunks of cars now and chunks of freeway and chunks of states and chunks of years. I was like the kind of, you know, he was killing so much in Los Angeles in the 80s. Um but uh, yes, she was a local woman, white woman named Linda Belcher in her mid-20s, I believe. Um, I think he dated her for a couple days, which was unusual. Um, strangled her. And, and I mean, Sam was, a, Sam was a, uh, an elaborate strangler. Sam would, Sam liked to take people's life, but the whole point was that taking of the life, the taking of the breath, the sort of ownership that gave him um, so he could really do it over and over again. Um, there were times he even, you know, gave women CPR. So the women didn't die in 30 seconds? No. No. I mean, few strangulations happen in 30 seconds. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the... DDA made the jury hold uh, just sit there in silence for three minutes. I mean, that would be a average, low to average amount of time. Even That's if you a were, long time. That would be a low to average amount of time if you were just straight doing it. But mm -hmm. when he was bringing them back to life and doing 10, it again. 10, 15. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. All right. Well, I have to ask you about your relationship with Sam. Mm -hmm. You went up to the prison every day for... Every time. weekend I went to the prison. I didn't go there every day because oh. the only weekend visiting. But I did actually wind up at while we were making the documentary that Joe Berlinger, uh, it's called Confronting a Serial Killer. He did the Paradise Lost series, the Bundy, the Dahmer recently um, made a movie about me making this book, basically, like chasing this guy down, like both in a sort of metaphysical sense and and trying to track down these victims and work with law enforcement. Um, and uh, 
<laughs> what was I at? Oh, I, I, I was going to ask you, oh. you went up and spent an awful lot of time. Oh, yeah, how much time? Um, so I went up there for, I mean, years until until COVID shut down visiting hours. But he was also in Texas. I visited him in Texas, in Wise County, Texas. Wise County, Texas Sheriff's Office. Not somewhere I ever expected to find myself. Um, I, I remember walking into the Marriott across the street and being like, where's the jail? And they're like, that's the jail. I was like, there's like less security in that in my, than my local high school. They're keeping Sam there. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was, uh, you know, like certainly a wild ride in that way. And you uh, but, you know, it, you know, it, uh, the content, the constant production of content, and also the urgency of trying to get all this information before he was dead. Because he was an old man by yeah, then. Yeah, he was 78 when I met him, 82 when he died, so. So you, you got quite close to him emotionally? I mean, yes. Uh, we were very close. I mean, I mean, I don't even talk to my mother that much. But... Um, it, like I don't know that I was close emotionally with him. I mean, yeah, yes, I guess if you would like use that as a real spectrum, like every single emotion. Okay. Um, you know, I, I I didn't hate his guts every single minute of every day. Um, I mean, unless I thought too much about it. Uh, it wasn't like that. It wasn't a terrifying experience every second. Um, but you know, it's been an experience that's never left me that totally changed me. Um, that really challenged a sort of fundamental, very surprise. Everyone's very surprised that it, that I had been this fundamentally positive person because I never really dressed that way. Um, until it you started, until it started to go away and, and I started to have a hard time finding as much joy in things and became really just overtaken by, you know, curiosity, which there's joy in curiosity. Um, but it's an odd kind of joy to solve a murder, you know? Um, and I mean, it's, it's certainly revelatory and, and I, and, gives you an incredible sense of gratitude. But uh, I, I, I don't know. It gave me a different gravitas. Uh, you did mention the solving the murder and the joy, it, a certain kind of joy it gives. You did talk to her sister, and uh, she didn't even know that she was gone, right? So this is Alice. So you're talking about Alice. So Alice is really the one that I, like, I found that pivotal thing which was, and you guys don't live in LA, okay? But just picture. Um, so go, that's east, west, that's north, south, all right? So that's the beach, <laughs> because th that's as west as it gets in LA. That's the Pacific Ocean, you know, that's here. <laughs> And, you know, that's San Francisco, that's Mexico. So he was saying, I was driving toward the beach, toward the beach, toward the beach, toward this 
Dominguez College, and it was in this overpass and on Central Avenue. Okay, except Central Avenue goes straight down like this. And I was like, it, it can't be Central Avenue and towards the beach. Like, you know, so I'm, I was just trying to figure it out a thousand ways. And that was the beauty of having a long-term relationship with him that I could go back and ask. Like, you can't be right, you know? And uh, and then I was, like, driving down the 710 one day, and I looked, and it said Long Beach. And I was like... It's, he's talking about Long Beach. And then I opened up my search parameters and I found the articles that described exactly what, you know, that exactly what he was talking about. So it was kind of a combination of just gumshoe work and, um, and talking to the guy myself. And the sister had never seen the articles and didn't. And if she had, she wouldn't have known they were her sister. So she, she just right. thought her sister wasn't calling her for years and went they had nothing. Way. They had nothing. So you were able to tell the sister her, her sister's actual story. Yes. And normally I never would have done this because I don't solve murders. I can't solve murders. I'm not a detective, um, but I work with law enforcement very closely. You know, but it's really like they there still has to be an investigation, you know, like Charlie can't just say, well, you know, Jillian killed all these people just because she told me she did last night. I was just kidding. Um, <laughs> there would actually still have to be an investigation. Um, but, you know, then that invest I knew that investigation was moving toward an indictment and that they had a partial they had a partial DNA and then they were running a, a YSTR DNA, which is, you know, uh, means just that they were moving on to the next piece. But they said, regardless of what happened, they were indicting. So I knew they were going to all the detectives I knew were in uniform at the time. It was the middle of COVID. There were there were protests in the streets and just like resources weren't going to cold cases. And I thought she's not young. Normally I wouldn't go and form a family. That's not my job. That's a cop's job. Um, uh, and it just, se that seems pretty audacious even for me, because I don't know that exactly that I'm right, right? Unless, it, unless it's been adjudicated. Um, but I knew enough in, in this case, and I called her, and as a journalist, you know, like there are many different ways you go at people, you know, like, and you talk to a victim very differently than you talk to a killer very differently than you talk to a cop, you know? And sometimes, you know, it's tempting to, like, you want to take someone off guard. You want to get the story. You want to, but, like, I, I said, you know, I like to give people a minute to think about it before I'm going to, like, give them the information. So I said, you know, I'm, I've been work I'm a journalist. I've been working on a story. Your sister, some information about your sister has come up. Um, would you like to hear what I found? And she said, I, I, I'm going to think about this for a little while. I'd like to talk to my kids and talk to my husband, get back to you in a few days. And she did. And she said, I, I'd like to know everything. She said, I'm, you know, and she had really thought through it. And we, t we talked about it. And, you know, over the years, we've become really close. I'm close with their kids. They came out here and put a headstone. 
for Alice. Um, and so I was able to be there for that. I mean, um, you know, and they, and, and I remember one time I was talking to Debbie at, at, and Debbie's her sister. Debbie went the total different direction. Alice was, they were dancers on Soul Train. They were dancers on Soul Train, and uh, Alice was unbelievably beautiful, big giant afro, going out with a guy from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like, everyone thinks they know things about these victims. You don't know everything about them. You don't know every single, you know, that, you, you know, you got turned on to coke by the guy from Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then 10 years later, you wind up in the wrong car. You know, it's like, you can't make assumptions about their lives, but in any case, uh, Debbie was her younger sister, and Alice was getting into this world, like this, you know, Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood world, and she took her to the comedy club. And some guy came up to her, and they were 16, 17, and he said, I'm Richard Pryor's manager. And she said, well, you, you ain't Richard Pryor, so why should I care? Mm -hmm. And you people are all wrong. Get me a cab. And she really left, and she went and joined the military. And she's like a high-ranking military official right now who is going to get my older son into Annapolis. <laughs> Fourth in the road, and two sisters went two uh -huh. different ways. And they went such totally different ways. And, you know, when she really thought that, like, Alice sounded so bad. She flew back from Germany. She was stationed in Germany. And she said, you know, I want, I want you to just come. Leave this life. You don't have to li live this way. Come back to Germany with me. Like, I can't stay here. Also, I can't bring you back with me. You have to go get your passport. And she said when she got on that plane, she knew it was the last time she'd see her that she was never going to do it, that she was never going to come. That, uh, And then uh, Debbie said to me, you know, I, I knew she wasn't going to see 60. I knew that much about my sister. Um, but she said, you know, and it's uh, not to spoil, but, you know, I mean, she said to me, I'm not worried. I don't have to be worried every day about what's happening to her because I know she's okay. I want to ask... Could we move on with maybe some questions or... Can I ask you one last question? Yeah. <laughs> there are you just some. Just want to keep all these people off. There are uh, drawings in the back of the book. Oh, yeah. Absolutely haunting. Please tell us how they came about. Uh, so Sam told me, you know, I'm, I'm good at two things in life, fighting and art. I'm like, mm, I think there's actually a third thing you're better at. Um, but he learned to draw when he was first incarcerated. And um, and and he was incarcerated from the time he was 13 till the time he was 25. Um, he was also a middleweight boxing champion, um, and he began uh, as he was in and out of prison all his life to draw women. Um, and he didn't always draw his victims. I mean, he draw he drew many things, but uh, it was you know how many serial killers are sort of noted for um, keeping trophies. He didn't, you know, he would go, I'm not stupid, you know? But he kept these women in his mind. He said, I live with my babies in my mind. And, and he would draw them. And when he did the series of official confessions to the FBI and the Department of Justice that 
um, you know, our 93 confessions now, and um, there have been 63 confirmed. That makes him the most prolific serial killer in American history by the FBI count. Um, and they're still closing the gap every day. And, um, you know, I just, I hope so much this brings more fire to the story and more and more closures. Because the FBI is actively seeking the public's help to close the last confessions that have not been matched to a known crime scene. Absolutely, as person. our local jurisdictions. Um, and, you know, it's like Sam Little's cold cases aren't the only cold cases. You know, there might be cold cases in your in your communities. And, um, you know, if you have interest in this and, you know, can put some you know, heat on the cops, put some, put some effort in yourself. You know, there's amazing resources available to people. I've been helped by um, citizen sleuths who comb the Charlie Project and the Doe Project and, you know, FBI.gov. Yeah. And you can also leave tips, anything, on my website, JillianLauren.com. All right. Everybody else's turn now. Anybody? All right. Yes. So I speak from numerous different perspectives. Oh, I speak from, I was just like, do I have a booger? <laughs> <laughs> like a big booger <laughs> um, um, so I write from different perspectives like some of it's from Mitzi's perspective very close third person some of it's me you know walking into the prison talking to Sam like you know in my that's the background I come from is memoirist so I'm all I I me me so those are the <laughs> those were the sort of more natural chapters for me but um you know I I wrote these the most sort of imaginative and and lyrical pieces were you know about historical figures in Sam's life or you know pr from the perspective of his, of his victims and um, you know I decided to do that one I, I really went back and forth because you know is, is that appropriation is it do I do I have the right to write about you know the story of this tr transgender woman in Miami in 1974. Um, well, you know who's I, I didn't know. She's you know she's long lost to the Everglades, and I, I just remember I, I you know I was struggling and I walked outside one night and I and I was just like, gosh, you know, can I just give it a try? Like, will you give me your permission to try? because I really don't want that face and that man and that, I'd like to, to hold your last narrative. Um, can I have a chance, you know? And, and of course what I found is that, you know, they, gi they give me a voice as much as I was trying to, you know, restore a voice and, and, and more importantly a name for them, um, you know, from a justice perspective is, you know, they gave me a voice for my anger, for my, you know, for my curiosity, for my, just like, I, you know, I felt like I was screaming 
with this book. I've never really had to before. I mean, I felt like I've had to scream, but not with my work. Maybe I wasn't brave enough to yet, but this really allowed me to. Um, I, I, got, I got all my screaming in. I annoyed the shit out of them. Wow, did I annoy them. But, you know, I also am very respectful. You know, I'm not like in there trying to, you know, I'm, I was, they knew I was writing a long form piece, first of all. So I wasn't like in there tr like pushing for a headline, you know. Yes, I, that I knew that, that I also knew through Michael Connolly. Like, you know, I, I definitely had, I had good references. Um, and, uh, and, and some of them, you know, were fans of my memoirs. And I, I have tremendous respect for cops. And, you know, I mean, I love writers, but there are sometimes, you know, I'd rather hang out with cops any day of the week. <laughs> and, um, and you know, and I think that that's genuine and comes through. And that also, you know, they they don't just start out telling you stuff. Uh, it takes a while, and it should take a while, you know. But there has to be a there has to be a back and forth between law enforcement and journalists, and because we sort of play the middle ground between this very cloistered community and, uh, of law enforcement and then the community that they serve. So like we, our being a headache, I think is how they ultimately put it, um, was, you know, I, I, I felt like I had an absolute important piece of accountability. Like, you're not just going to get this guy confessing to 93 murders and no one's watching. Those confessions, no one's on you, no one's looking, no one's asking, how are you getting these? What is he, you know? And, and uh, you know, like the public brings accountability. And, and I took that very seriously. The killer, yeah, yeah. Um, he he wanted a TV. Oh, that was the thing that tipped the scales. But what he really wanted was was a friend, and he also wanted to fuck with the cops a little bit. So uh, you know, I I was I was excellent in that capacity for him. I'll let you read the book. <laughs> oh, you did. We've got uh, a question it's, it's on the right. It's worse in the book. <laughs> and thank you. Jillian. Oh. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hello. Ah. Everyone was different. Um, you know, there were certain ones I focused on. A lot of I focused on the LA cases, the original LA cases for which he was indicted, the the three DNA hits that they got there they put him away with. Um, so I started with those families, um, and a lot of them were reachable and talked and had given victims impact statements, um, you know, and then I started to branch out as I reached out across the country. And, you know, I mean, I, 
I will do anything. I went to Odessa, Texas and just started knocking on people's doors. And even Sam's niece was like, honey, your mother must be going crazy walking around the country like this. And Sam's Sam's niece's daughter was like, yeah, I'm sure her mother got over it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, you know, I, I just... I knocked on their doors. I mean, I called first. Um, it was Texas, um, you know, and, and said, would you be willing to talk to me? And I, um, you know, I talked to them at length. And like I said, I, I give them time. I give them time to say no, too. You know, I don't stand outside anyone's door, like, with a battering ram. Um, if they don't want to talk, then that's, then I respect that. Um, and But people tend to want to if you if you approach them like from where they stand you know yeah Jillian have you said much about the uh, the Texas Ranger the um, in the Texas Nexus of the case not tonight what you want to know tell us a little bit about this <laughs> well you know I mean when when the world drops a six foot seven inch cowboy into your lap, you're sort of like, I guess I gotta write a book. Um, w- well, so there is th- a Texas Ranger is an actual thing, by the way. In, in case I'm the only, well, you guys, you guys live closer. I, don't, I I'm from New York, all right. I was like a baseball player, or what? Um, and. Uh, so as I found out about Sam and I was like, here's this underreported story. I'm going to make it this splash, right? As I didn't know that I was like insinuating myself into a federal investigation. The FBI had found a Texas case. And that's what they needed to get this guy. His name is Texas Ranger James B. Holland, Company B. Um who is a notorious sort of serial killer whisperer and uh, an expert in confessions, confessions, firearms, works for the DEA, trains, foreign... Just your average guy. Yeah, 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 and likes to tell me that he was the person who kept me alive by keeping all that weed I smoked, not soaked in gasoline. You're welcome, young lady. Um, but... uh. He was a notorious uh, serial, a notorious guy who had gotten confessions from um, one of the first, one of the earliest serial killers still alive in the United States, like um, William Reese. I don't know if any of you know about William Reese in Texas, but that's a, that's a really, uh, that's a hell of a case. And he did that after Katrina living in his car, eating cocktail weenies, and, you know, at four in the morning, got this fashion, confession out of this guy. He really was quite spectacular uh, and, and quite infuriating. And I never really did think I'd find myself hanging out with a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of cowboys in Decatur, Texas. But, but what a fascinating thing to see a world you'd never see. And that's what I think, you know, I mean, when I think about what I kind of gave, what I lost for this, I mean, what what I gained, the kind of sense of meaning, and I think my writing's better. I don't know if my family's better. 
I can't say. I'm not really kidding. I'm, you know, I don't know that I'm better after this. Like I always say, you know, like don't, don't think writing's therapy. Don't make that mistake. Um, because you actually may need a whole lot more. <laughs> um, but, you know. I wanted to ask you, now that you bring this up, I'll ask you. Writing true crime is very difficult emotionally and in a lot of other ways. You go to the prisons, there's stacks and stacks of files, and you look into the faces of the survivors, you look into the faces of the mourning. Now that you've done this, will you do it again? Well, when I think, when I sort of like have to put my, you know, Lady Justice blindfold on and say, you know, way what, what, what I gained and what I lost from this, um, and all the people, you know, the cowboy and the detectives and the victims' families and the victims who all live within treasure forever. And I still think of, I, I think of them as the birds who are in my trees when I write. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, hi, Alice. <laughs> hi, Audrey. Very sweet. Um, and uh, I think that I'm going to say that, that, that the scale tips toward, yeah, I'm going to do it again. Do we have any other questions? I know you guys. I work it like you have never seen. I you said have she was never close to seen. Because I wanted that brain. I was talking to. I was talking the most, and they're in here. You know, so much of this was like also an explanation, uh, exploration of science for me. And guess what? I'm really good at at science and excited about it. So I'm like, I'm getting this unbelievably aberrant criminal brain to the best neuroscientist in the country, and I talked him into it. I was like, Let, just give me your brain, I'll pro I promise nothing really shitty will happen with your ashes. Like, I mean, I'll do something respectful, right? And he set it all up, and it, by the time it happened, though, <coughs> I think that was maybe such a strange request, and um, that they hadn't dealt with very much before, be, I'm not actually his relative, so he would have had to probably do a whole lot more work. And the fact that he was like such a prominent killer, I'm there was only there were only like five days I had to push this through the coroner's office, and I couldn't get it done. I mean, there are really I'm always just like there is nothing I cannot get done, and I couldn't get it done, and I wound up with a whole bunch of useless dead serial killer ashes in my in my garage because um they are not there now we all moved them to a storage space but i mean i also have hundreds of letters hundreds of um hundreds of his drawings and what i hadn't expected i was all you know i'll take a hacksaw and get that brain to get it studied um i didn't expect i was going to get every single possession he owned like his shower shoes and it i i went to the post office and got box after box after box and box after box after box of serial killer fan letters 
and and all the pictures from his walls, um, you know, that he had drawn and and looked at. Um, and uh, and so it's you know I, I've been doing I've been working you know with a TikTok channel which focuses mostly on missing persons you know and we're starting with Sam's victims because it is it is my specialty the thing I spent most time on but you know we're going to expand it and we really really want to invite people in because uh, you know I'm just one person and I'm not even one person who was like especially good at doing this. I, I'm just a, well, I mean, I am now, <laughs> but, or at least I know how to now, right? Like I know, I know the process now, but I had to learn. Um, and it's learnable, you know, it's like the organization and how to read an investigation, and how to think about chronology and how, and, and motivation. Um, so, yeah, uh, I have a lot of letters. I've been also reading those on the TikTok, but it's mostly, um, and some of them are funny, and some of them are horrible, um, and, you know, like like all of these things are. Um, I, and so I, I invite you to come and look at that, too, and my Instagram and follow along as uh, I, I continue this journey. Just one quick thing, Patrick, before you pull us off with a shepherd's hook. Um, one name jumped out at me from your uh, acknowledgments on the back of the book. Let's do a little name dropping here. Trevor Noah? Uh, <laughs> I should just say yes. Is it someone else with the same it's name? the same name. <laughs> Okay. He has the same name. Okay. I should just say yes next time, right? Well, her, her husband <laughs> is a rock star. What about him? <laughs> her husband is a rock star after all, right? Husband My husband is a rock, is a rock star, star okay? But that Trevor Noah is his friend from school. <laughs> well, I didn't want to neglect to ask Camille. Um, she's a fantastic writer. And uh, what, yeah. what you're working on right now and... Um, Maybe a few words about the, the Marjorie Orban case, which uh, we had a fun ride into the prison. And uh, I posed as her photographer in, in the uh, women's prison. Um, Patrick here actually took the, fo the photo yeah. on the cover of my book. I'm coming out here and visiting you guys. I'm, I'm standing out of frame. We're in a little tiny room with the grill between us. And, uh, you know, Patrick are basically in each other's laps. And he took this photo. Very good job. You can't do that anymore, right? Not in California. Not since Manson. Can't record, take a picture, unless you get it in the photo booth, in the, so vi you in would the visiting room. So there's one in there. After your visits with him, at least you would go to a diner sometimes and just write longhand, right? For Not sometimes. I mean, I went to the time. very first place that wasn't a jack-in-the-box. And I sat and wrote because um, I did it all from memory. So, yeah, I know it's a good thing my father was a gambler. He, he, he really taught me a lot of good memory tricks. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 
100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.